listening to a sermon from Sojourn Church in Fairfax, Virginia. We hope that this is an encouragement to you no matter where you find yourself on your spiritual journey. If you're not already, we would encourage you to connect to your local church. If you'd like to find out more about Sojourn in particular, please visit our website at sojournfairfax.com. May God bless you now as you listen to the preaching of his word. Um, Today's reading is from Psalm 126, so please stand for the reading of God's word. Restore our fortunes, O Lord. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with shouts of joy. Then they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us. We are glad. Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negev. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. It's good to gather with you this morning. My name is Justin. I'm one of the pastors here at Sojourn. And I'm just grateful to be able to sing with you so far and now open up God's word with you this morning. Uh, If you are new, as Edward said, we'd love to meet you uh, after the service. So please come up and say hello uh, before you leave today. But as we dive into Psalm 126 this morning, let's just pray uh, that God would bless this time. So would you pray with me? Father, we come before you this morning and ask that you would work in this time as we open up your holy word that you would encourage us, that you would draw us closer to you. God, I pray this morning that you would help us to recognize and acknowledge your presence, not only here in this moment, but as we go out from here in the moments of our lives, the day-to-day of our lives. God, you are ever present and ever faithful. So I pray as we open up your word this morning that you would remind us of that. God, would you teach us your ways? Guide us in your paths. Lead us in truth and teach us. You alone our God, the God of our salvation. And for you, God, we wait. We wait for you to work in our lives. We wait for you to bring around restoration where it's needed, both in our lives and our world. And I pray that as we open up your word this morning, you would help us to recognize that even as we wait, that we can still have joy. So we pray, Holy Spirit, that you would work in this time Apply your word to our lives. Transform us because we've sat under the preaching of your word this morning. Fill us with your spirit. Help us to be attentive. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. So I grew up uh, in this area. I wasn't born here, but my family moved to Fairfax County when I was about four years old. And so I spent most of my formative years here in Fairfax County. Went to K through 12 here in Fairfax County, a product of Fairfax County Public Schools. And this year, I have been out of high school for 20 years, 20 years since I graduated from Chantilly High School. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, I didn't get to give a speech at graduation, so here I am now. But um, We are having our 20-year high school reunion this year, and I am planning on going. I think it'll be good and fun to see a bunch of people that I haven't seen in a really long time, uh, just to hang out and hear about what's going on in our lives. People have been sharing 
pictures, old pictures already on Facebook, and it's just, uh, I think, going to be a good time. But, you know, reunions, at the end of the day, reunions really are about remembering. I mean, we'll probably spend our time split pretty evenly between catching up on what's been going on in our lives and saying over and over again, remember when, remember when, remember when. Now, I know for some of you, remembering high school is the absolute last thing that you would like to do. Uh, But for me, (laughs) amen, (laughs) but for me, high school, generally speaking, was a lot of fun. Sure, like every teenager, there were ups and downs and highs and lows, challenges and difficulties. There was real loss and heartache at times in high school and sometimes, as you can imagine, just perceived heartache and loss in my time in high school. But generally speaking, I enjoyed my four years as a Chantilly Charger. And that's the nature of remembering. Depending on what it is that you're remembering about your life at any given moment, it can be a source of grief or it could be a source of joy for you. It could be marked by happiness or it could be marked by challenge. And a lot of times it's a mixture of both for us when we take time to remember. As we come to our next psalm in our Songs for Sojourning sermon series, we see something very important for us to pay attention to as God's people And it's this, that remembering is not only normal for God's people, it's necessary for God's people. Life in a broken world is legitimately hard. It's okay for us to acknowledge that. Even as followers of Jesus, it's it's good for us to acknowledge that life in a broken world is legitimately hard. Part of the consequences of our sin and rebellion, both personally and cosmically, our rebellion against God is that there are challenges and conflict in our life. There's toil and tiredness in our life. And all of those things, as they come together at different moments and at different times, can assault us. They feel like they're attacking us. They assault us, and when they assault us, they can rob us of joy genuine, real joy in our life. Now, joy is not a a surface-level happiness. Joy is a a deep-rooted, abiding satisfaction. It's a delighting. It's being content and satisfied. So when we live in this broken world, oftentimes our joy, that real joy, can be robbed from us. And all of us can struggle with a lack of joy. I, I don't care if you're already following Jesus, or maybe you're just here this morning checking out who Jesus is. No matter where you're at on your spiritual journey, all of us can struggle with lacking joy in our life. And our world is quick to seek to sell us on ways to acquire joy. Our world is quick on ways to seek to sell us ways to restore joy where it's lacking in our life. But what we learn from Psalm 126 is that knowing and remembering who God is and what God has done is necessary. It's essential in order to have joy and restore joy wherever it's lacking. And so my hope this morning as we walk through this psalm is that God would help you by the work of his spirit in your life, not only this morning, but in the everyday moments of your life. As you go out from here and you engage your week, as you interact with your roommates or your spouse or your kids or your coworkers or your neighbors, in those everyday moments of life when somebody cuts you off in traffic or it takes a little bit longer at Starbucks than you'd hope it would take you, whatever it happens to be in those everyday little moments of your life that God would help you to remember who he is and to remember what he's done and that by doing that, he will do a restoring work in your life and the lives of those around you and then by and through restoring joy to you. So with that, let's jump into Psalm 126, and may God bless the preaching of his word this morning. 
Psalm 126 is not a very long psalm, and it can be broken down into two sections, which will serve as our two anchoring points this morning. The first point, the first section is look back in remembrance. We see that in verses 1 through 3. The second section, our second point, is look forward in hope, and we see that in verses 4 through 6. So let's take a look at our first point, this first section. Look back in remembrance, verses 1 through 3. The psalm begins in story-like form. Listen to what the psalmist says again. It says, when the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. We're immediately drawn in to a time when God has done some kind of amazing restoring work in the lives of his people. Now, when we see this right away, it says, when the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion. I want us to understand something here because, uh, unfortunately, within our world and even within our country, and one of the things we've exported to the nations is a false gospel, a prosperity gospel that says that God wants to hook you up and make you happy and healthy, that he wants to make you rich. That's not what he's saying here. And it's that God hooked them up with more and more riches. Restoring their fortunes is about restoring from loss, restoring something that's been taken away. I mean, that's what the nature of restoring is. It's, it's recovering something that's been damaged or ruined or taken away. Now, we don't know the specific instance that the author has in mind here. Lots of scholars spectate on this. They think, well, maybe it was this particular thing the writer was referring to. We don't really know if it's about a specific instance that he's referring to or really just the overall history of God's restorative work, his overall, the overall history of God's redeeming work towards his people. But either way, either way, as we flip through the pages of this book, this big story of God's work in the lives of his people, we see over and over and over again that God is consistently good towards his people. We see over and over again that God is consistently restorative towards his people. And he does that by continually pursuing his people and redeeming his people and providing for his people. We see examples of this over and over again. We can go all the way back to the beginning. We see Adam and Eve. They rebel against God. They tell God, I don't need you. I don't want you. I want to be the God of my own life. I can do this on my own. And what does God do? He pursues them. He confronts them with their sin. He doesn't brush over it. He doesn't ignore it. He acknowledges that what they've done is wrong, yet he comes after them. He clothes them with clothes so they're not ashamed and naked anymore, and he tells them that he's going to do a redeeming work in and through their family line. We come to the place of Noah, and God calls Noah and his family, and all the world is set against God. They're, they're rebelling against God. They're continuing to go away from him, yet he saves Noah and his family. He redeems them out of the destruction that is going to come to the earth. Abraham, he isn't even looking for God. He has no understanding or knowledge of who God is, yet God comes to Abraham and calls him out, him and his family, his wife, and says, I'm going to make you a people. I'm going to make you a nation that is larger than you can even imagine, more numerous than the stars in the sky and the sand on the shore. He pursues him and he redeems him. And then we see through God's families that unfolds that Joseph has this experience of God's pursuit and redemption. Joseph is cast off by his brothers, left for dead, yet God sees Joseph. He doesn't forget him. He doesn't ignore him. He sees him in his distress. And God redeems him. He brings them out of that. And not only does he save him and redeem him, he puts him in a place of authority that ultimately ends up bringing redemption to not just Joseph's family, but all of God's people. God's people eventually are enslaved in Egypt. 
for years and years and years, hundreds of years. And so God sends another redeemer to them. He sends Moses to them. And Moses has his own little story of redemption. As Moses wanders away from God, he runs away in fear. God comes after him. And then he speaks to him and he tells him who he is. And then he sends Moses back to release his people from slavery. And they're released from slavery and they're wandering in the desert and God provides food for them and he provides water for them. And then he eventually puts Joshua in leadership and parts the Jordan River and they cross over into the promised land that God said he would give to his people. God's people continue to rebel against him though, even in the midst of that. But God continues to redeem and pursue and he returns them back from exile We could go over and over, and there's so many different stories that we could look at throughout the scriptures of seeing God doing good towards his people. The amazing reality is is that God often does this redeeming and restoring work not because of his people's faithfulness, but in spite of their unfaithfulness. See, when the psalmist says, and this is good for us to remember about our own lives, when the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. This isn't a time for them to be like, yeah, God hooked us up because we did good things. He's not rewarding them for their behavior, their performance. They're not submitting themselves to God saying, look at all the good I've done, now you owe me. No, it's in spite of their unfaithfulness that God lavishes grace upon them. Whatever the situation is, whatever the circumstance was that the author's remembering, God's restoring work, and he says it was so significant that it made them feel like they were dreaming. Like, I think they're walking around going, like, is this real life? Like, is God actually, did he really do this? It seems so out of this world that God would do this kind of work in our lives and in our midst. And what's the result of this restorative work? The author tells us, In verse 2, the beginning of verse 2, he says, Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with shouts of joy. The result of this restoration that God has done amongst his people is laughter and joy. I mean, we can imagine this, right? If you've lost something, something's been damaged that you hold highly valuable, maybe it's a, a, a precious piece of art or some meaningful photograph in your life and someone takes that and returns it to you perfectly restored in mint condition, you would be ecstatic over that. This is God restoring his people. And so you can imagine they're overwhelmed with God's kindness towards them. They can't help but explode in jubilant celebration. But catch what happens next. As a result of their celebrations of joy, their neighbors take notice. Look what it says at the end of verse 2. Then they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The people around them were able to see the restorative work of God in in the lives of his people. They were able to see this, what God had done in the lives of his people, and they testified to it. I think it's because they're so loud in their celebration. Have you been around a loud person before that's excited? If you know our other pastor, I'm sure you have. Right? So there's, there's a, when someone is celebrating, when they're loud, it, people take notice of that. And so the nations, your, their neighbors are hearing their celebrations. They're hearing their exaltation of what God has done. And the nations have to say, the Lord has done great things for them. Notice they don't say, the nations don't say their God has done great things or a God has done great things. They use the proper name of God. They say the Lord, Yahweh, has done great things for them. What an amazing reality. 
When God does this kind of work, the kindness of the Lord towards his people, it testifies to the nations about his character. He is a restoring God who does good to his people. And I love verse 3. It's almost a a repeat of the end of verse 2. It says, the Lord has done great things for us. We are glad. The psalmist and God's people, as they rehearse this psalm, they repeat the testimony of the nations as if to say, yeah, yes, yes, he has. Yahweh has done great things for us. Sometimes we need to be reminded by other people of what God has done in our lives so we can testify to that. And because of that, they are glad. To be glad is to be overjoyed, to be full of joy. What we see in these first few verses here is that joy is a consequence of the kindness and restorative and redeeming work of God. Joy is a consequence of the kindness and restorative and redeeming work of God. The author is remembering a time, he's remembering a season where God did great things for his people and that his people were full of joy. And it's good for God's people to reflect. It's good for God's people to remember his past restoring work because once again they're in need of it. Which is what leads to our next section. Look forward in hope. See this in verses 4 through 6. Look at verse 4. Now the psalmist says, Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negev. This time, instead of remembering God's restorative work, they're pleading for it. They're they're pleading for God to do it again. And again, this cry for restoring fortunes, it's not about material wealth, it's a cry for mercy. God, would you be merciful towards us? We don't know what the situation is that they're in, but we see the seriousness of it in the second half of verse 4. It says, again, to restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negev. The Negev, or Negev in some translations, is the dry, arid region in the south of Judah, kind of the southern part of Israel. What he's saying here is, this is how I feel. I feel like that place. I feel dry. I feel arid. I feel rocky. I feel uninhabitable. I I feel just gross. I mean, if you've ever been to that, it's just, it can be hard to be in. It's hot, and it's, it's just not a fun place to be all the time. He's saying, this is how I feel, but how I feel in the midst of that, he's pleading for God to do something. He's pleading in the midst of his dryness for God to turn that place of dryness to the flourishing and thriving like when the rain comes into the Negev. When the rains come, that dry, arid region, the gullies are filled with water, and that area blossoms up as plants grow and life comes. He's being honest with the Lord. Restore me like that, God. I feel so dry right now. I need you to do that kind of work. See, when you're in places of drought in your life, when you're in places of dryness in life, it can suck all the joy out of your life. Have you ever, we were just talking about this this past week at home. Have you ever done the cinnamon challenge? Where you take like a, a big old spoonful of cinnamon in your mouth? I wouldn't recommend it. I mean, you can get somebody else to do it, but don't do it yourself. It, it sucks all the liquid out of your mouth. I mean, it's so hard for you to swallow anything. It just kind of sucks all of the moisture out of your mouth. It's in those moments in life where joy is sucked out of your life. When you're experiencing dryness. You're experiencing difficulty. Do you ever feel that way? 
You're in that place of dryness. You're in that place of desperation. You're going, God, I just don't feel very joyful right now. Maybe it's a massive challenge you're experiencing. Maybe it's very real loss or difficulty that you're walking through. Or maybe, maybe it's just the wear and tear of the daily challenges of life. The situation or circumstance you find yourself in. Listen, it doesn't have to be catastrophic. It doesn't have to be catastrophic to be difficult and lead to joylessness. But whatever it is, whatever you're going through right now in your life or whatever you might go through in the future, it doesn't mean you are without hope. Look at verses 5 through 6. Verse 4, they cry out for this return of fortunes for God's mercy in their life. And then it says this, those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed of, for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bearing his sheaves with him. This is a declaration of hope. Do you notice what he says here? He says, those who sow in tears, because of real loss, because of real difficulty in your life, grief over sin and sinfulness, he says, they shall reap with shouts of joy. Not they might, or hopefully they will. They will reap with shouts of joy. And he who goes out weeping in his sowing, he shall, he definitely will come home with shouts of joy, bringing the fruit born out of suffering and trial. If you're weeping in your sowing, he says, this is going to happen. There's going to be fruit that will come from that suffering that will lead you to shout for joy at the restoring work of God. They recall a former time of blessing, which they are currently not experiencing. They recall this former time, which they're currently not experiencing, but they express longing for that blessing to return. And they do so with hope. But see, it's their remembering that allows them to have hope for blessing. It's their remembering that allows them to have hope for joy to be restored in the midst of not having it in this moment. This is not wishful thinking. It is deeply rooted hope for God to do the kind of work that he does. Just as he redeemed and restored joy in the past, he will do a redeeming and restoring work again, resulting in abundant joy. Now there's something really important for us to see and learn from this in Psalm 1 and 26. We see in this psalm that it's an expression of the difference between groaning and grumbling. When we find ourselves in less than favorable or desirable situations, whether it's small or large, we can tend towards one of those two things, groaning or grumbling. Grumbling happens when we look at our situation and we don't like what's going on and we complain to God, or we complain about God, or we complain about our situation. And that can manifest itself in a lot of different ways within our lives. Sometimes it can be overtly that we're very loud grumblers that we grumble amongst one another and to one another. And sometimes our grumbling can be very subtle. And we've learned to keep it to ourselves, but we still grumble under our breath or within our heads and hearts. And all of our grumbling at some level is usually mixed with anger in some way. We're angry at God. We're angry at the situation we find ourselves in. And grumbling, at the end of the day, is an expression of our discontentment that we're not content with where God has us, we're not content with what's going on, and when we have discontentment, it leads to a lack of joy. It's an expression of our unbelief, that we don't believe God is good, that he is faithful, and so we find ourselves grumbling. 
Now, groaning, on the other hand, happens when we look at our situation. And again, it's not something that we like. It's not something that we enjoy. It's not something that we're thankful particularly for in the moment. It's difficult. It's really hard. And instead of complaining, though, we acknowledge the difficulty. I, mean, I think we can learn something about that as, as followers of Jesus, that it's okay to lament. It's okay to bring those sorrows before God. It's okay to acknowledge that this is actually hard. You're not expected to always have a smile on your face to come as you gather with the church or in community and act like everything's okay. No, groaning is acknowledging that things are difficult, acknowledging that things are challenging, acknowledging that what's going on is hard, and then crying out to God for help. Coming before Him. Groaning is longing for the situation to change, but not with anger at God, but striving even in the moment-to-moment reality of your life, striving to trust in him again, striving to believe that he's good, fighting for contentment, fighting for joy, even when things are hard. And that's what's happening here in Psalm 126. This is a cry, the cry of verse 4 is a collective cry of groaning. God, would you do this work? Would you restore us like you have before? It's followed by hope that God will do a restoring work. So let me ask you this morning, when something in particular is challenging in your life, do you find yourself more inclined to grumble or to groan before the Lord and with others? And do you find yourself, where do you find yourself more inclined to go, towards the side of grumbling or towards the side of groaning? I encourage you to really think about that. Talk with one another about that in community this week. And if you find yourself in that place of grumbling, And God's grace is sufficient for you. Repent, turn away from that, and come to the Lord again. You might receive grace upon grace. Psalm 126 is instructive and helpful for us today because we see a pattern in it. We see a pattern that's couched in the fact that this is a psalm of ascent. If you remember, when we started this series a few weeks ago, we talked about what these psalms are. These psalms are not just songs that were sung once. They were sung over and over and over again for years and years and years by God's people as they journeyed to the temple. The psalm was written in a particular time by a particular person for a particular situation, but the pattern they portray is consistent with our ongoing experience of this life. You see, this psalm is about real life because real life is full of both weeping and laughter, grief and joy. So God's people needed to sing this song on repeat. They needed to have it play over and over again because the experience of their life was a consistent fight for joy, and the same is still true for us today. This means that this song for sojourning is always relevant because you and I also need to look back in remembrance in order to look forward in hope so that we can have joy in the present. We need to look back in remembrance and look forward in hope so that we can have joy in the present. So what are we to do with this in our own lives and community? Well, joy should be a characteristic of the Christian life. One of the fruits of the Spirit is joy. It's something God says when the Spirit is at work in your life, you will have joy. It'll bear out in your life. But, I mean, honestly, that's not always the case, right? That doesn't often happen. When we think about being followers of Christ, do we see each other as joyful people? Do our neighbors see us as followers of Jesus, as joyful people? I would say oftentimes that's not true. Why is that the case? 
I think it's because we've often forgotten our memories of God's kindness towards us, our memories of God's faithfulness are left by the wayside or they're just overwhelmed by the present of whatever's going on in our life. All of us face struggles. All of us face difficulties. All of us face temptations. There will be situations and circumstances and seasons of suffering in this life. And the fact that this psalm, again, it's a part of a collection of songs that were sung and repeated over and over again, it communicates that. And when restoration is needed in our life, in your life, when joy is lacking, you will be tempted. When joy is lacking in your life, you will be tempted, just like I am, to search for joy in something else. I mean, our culture is built on offering you cheap jolts of joy. Whether that's entertainment or relationships or changing your job or your circumstances or food and drink, it offers you cheap jolts of joy. And the reason that that's easy for us to grab onto is we get bored in the mundane parts of life or we just want something to divert us or distract us from things that are really difficult. Man, give me something to take my attention away from what's going on. Give me something quick that'll make me feel good in the moment. But the joy that those things offer, they never seeps, it never seeps into the depth of your soul. It's surface level happiness. It never changes you. The effects of it are extremely temporary because they're temporary, they leave you looking for another joy high in something else. I think the reason for that is because this world, with a rejection of God, seeks to alleviate and eliminate every aspect of hurt or difficulty in your life. It's not good to have challenges. It's not good to suffer. And so the world's constantly saying, well, get rid of that. Do everything at whatever cost to alleviate pain and suffering in your life. And it does so by enticing you to purchase joy from its little shop of trinkets. Things that will end up on the trash heap and thrown out one day when you clean your house out, right? But Psalm 126 gives no hints that this is the way to restore joy in your life. So I think one of the most remarkable things that we learn from this psalm is that laughter and joy does not exclude weeping. Laughter and joy does not exclude weeping. What that means is, is it's not a call to fake it. It's not a call to pretend that everything is okay in your life. It's not a call for you to act like there's not real pain and real hardship and real sorrow that is present in your life right now or will come. But what we also learn in the midst of this is that those things are unable to drive out the happiness of the redeemed. Why? Because when we understand, we, or when we understand and that we understand that real joy doesn't come about through escape, real joy comes about through immersing ourselves in God. See, the pattern we see in Psalm 126 is that you can have joy and you can fight for joy no matter what's going on by placing your faith in the faithfulness of God. We have to understand something. What God does is rooted in who he is. What he does is rooted in who he is. The author recalls the fact that God has done great things for them. But why? Why has he done great things? Because they're worthy of those great things? Because they're deserving of those great things? They've earned them? No, because God is great and God is good. Because he's full of loving kindness and mercy and grace. Because he is a faithful redeemer. What God does is rooted in his character and his nature. But God has not just done great things for them, friends. God has done great things for us. 
And this has been really helpful for me this week. I've read Psalm 126 many times. My family is memorizing verse 3 this week. But something I've struggled with a lot over this past year in particular is a lack of joy. Lack of joy. And by God's grace, I've realized that my lack of joy is rooted in and stems from just discontentment. And it's discontentment in a lot of areas. Discontentment with our church. Discontentment with my family. Discontentment with just my life. But here's why I love God's word. His living and active word. His word that is sharper than a two-edged sword that cuts me in half and exposes me before my loving, gracious, kind Father. In reading and studying Psalm 126 this week, God has used his word to challenge me. He's used his word to convict me, and he's used his word to begin to change me. See, this psalm has helped me to realize something that I, in my own life, so often forget to remember. I so often forget to reflect. I so often forget to actually celebrate the things that God has done. I so often forget God's kindness and faithfulness to me throughout my life in the big ways and the small ways. I forget God's kindness and faithfulness to us. I so often forget who the God is that I say that I worship and say that I follow. And as God's people, we need to do more remembering and more celebrating so that we might be reminded that God is faithful to his plans and his people. Now, maybe things aren't the way I want them to be right now in our church or in my family or in my life, but I can still have joy because God is good and he is faithful and he is God. My joy, your joy, isn't fleeting when it's rooted in who God is. So when I'm struggling with joy in the midst of grief or trial, crying out for God to do a restoring work, it has been helpful for me. It's been helpful for me to remember the greatest act of restoration that God has already done and is doing in my life, that he's made me a new creation in Christ. I mean, listen to these truths from God's word. From Romans chapter 6, some of us are memorizing verses 1 through 14. This is Romans 6, 3 through 6. It says this, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? He's saying we've been immersed into Christ Jesus. We've been immersed into his death. We were buried, therefore, with him by by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we've been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 17 and 18 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he or she is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And who is this from? From you? Because you figured it out? Because you're a smart person, because you got it all together. No, it says all this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself. Jesus took on the wrath and punishment that I deserved. He willingly went to the cross to pay for my rebellion, to pay for me and all my sin and all my selfishness and all my self-focus. He came and went to the cross to rescue me and restore me and to give me not just small sips of joy, but abundant joy to give me more of himself. 
And if you are in Christ, if you have truly placed your faith in Jesus for who he is and what he's done, this is true for you too. See, I've thought about several of you this week. I mean, one of the joys of pastoring is that I get to hear God's stories of redeeming and transforming grace in your life. Some of you met Jesus as you've been a part of this community and this church. Some of you have seen your lives radically transformed and changed, throwing off sin that has entangled you for so long and experiencing freedom for the first time in your life. Some of you, it hasn't been some massive thing, but you're just experiencing those daily growing love for Jesus in your life. I've seen God work in your life, and that gives me joy because God's at work. He's doing that redeeming and restoring work. I need to be reminded of that. My guess is you do too. Some of you, I'm excited that you're here this morning because you haven't yet experienced the redeeming work of God in your life. I'm excited because you're here. In God's providence, he brought you to gather with us this morning. In God's providence, you're here to hear that our God does this kind of work. Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. He came to rescue you from your sin, to rescue you out of the pits of eternal hell and wrath that you deserve for your rebellion against God. And the invitation of grace is open to you for you to come and experience that restoring work right now, even in this moment, so you can journey with Jesus not only now, but in the future when we'll be in the new heavens and the new earth with our King and Lord. Come to him today. Come to him today, whether that's for the first time or the thousandth time. See, friends, Jesus is the ultimate display of the mercy of God towards us. He's the ultimate display of the mercy of God towards us that we need to remember and come back to over and over again in order to be rooted amidst the winds and waves of this life. So I want to invite you this morning to walk in repentance and walk in faith Where have you been seeking joy in someone else or something else besides God? Where have you been finding those quick jolts and hits of joy in your life? Where do you need restoration and you've been seeking it in something else besides the great restorer? Acknowledge that this morning. Repent. Repentance is about calling that out and turning away from it back to the restorer, back to our restoring God. So I invite you to do that today, right now, even in this moment and as you go throughout this week. Because the reality is it's something we'll need to do over and over again. Joy should be characteristic of the Christian life, not because we drum it up on our own, not because we fabricate it on our own, but because of all we've been given in Christ. I mean, where would you honestly be? Where would you honestly be without the redeeming and restoring work of Jesus in your life? Have you, have you ever taken time to think about that? Would you even still be alive today? Would you have the relationships you have today apart from the redeeming and restoring work of Christ? Would you, would you have the ability to have this kind of joy? Friends, God has done great things for us. He has done great things for us, and when we remember that, we can be glad in him. Now listen, I want to be careful here, because the reality of verses 4 through 6 is not some broad brushstroke over the real challenges of your life things that are actually difficult for you right now. He says they're sowing in tears. They're sowing in tears. You can imagine someone going out, working in the fields, and literally what's seeding the ground is the tears from their eyes. They're weeping as they go out. This is real pain, real difficulty, real challenges, and maybe that's where you are right now. I know that's where some of you are right now. 
And for others of us, maybe that isn't where you're at right now, but very well might be where you are in the future. But what I want us to see in this, what I want us to remember, is to remember who God is and what he's done. And when we do that, we can have hope for what he will do. Because see, each moment in your life where you need restoration, each moment in your life where you need joy to be restored, it's an invitation. An invitation for you to get more of God, the God who knows how to wipe away tears, the God who knows how to resurrect life. And our God is unchanging. He's the same, ye- same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. If he has done this restoring work in the past, why would we assume that he is unable to do this in the future, that he'll act differently toward us in the future? Now, this doesn't mean that everything's going to turn out the way that we want in the moment. What it means, though, is that we can trust in the midst of our sorrow, in the midst of our sadness, in the midst of real difficulty and the drudgery of life, in the midst of the maddening things and the mundane, that because our God has been faithful, he will be faithful to the end. Friends, weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes in the morning. This is the heart and hope of this psalm. You and I can have joy now because we know of the great things God has done, ultimately saving us in Christ, and we know and believe that he will restore all things in the future when King Jesus comes and cracks the sky and comes again to make all things new. So come to him now, friends. Come to him now to have joy restored. Again, whether that's the first time or the thousandth time in your life. But here's one thing I don't want us to miss in this as we close out. When we encounter difficulty in this life, we aren't meant to endure and persevere alone. Remember, this psalm was sung collectively by God's people as they journeyed together. And you and I are on a journey too. This is not a solo endeavor. God never meant for your life with Christ to be something about just you and Jesus. He saved you into a community. So this is a communal trek that we're on to the new city where there'll be no more weeping because there will be no more sadness, no more sickness, and no more sin. So now, as we're on this journey as fellow sojourners, we can help one another along the way to not grumble, but groan with hope and fight for joy in the present. We do this by reminding one another of who God is, by reminding one another of what he's done and celebrating, like really celebrating. Like, why don't we have parties where we just talk about God's grace and eat good food, and have a great time with one another, like just blown away by the the richness of God's grace towards us. We should have the best parties in the entire world because of what God's done for us. It's one of the reasons it's so important for us to gather together every, every week as the church, as God's people. Sure, you can sit at home and listen to a sermon. You can listen to worship music on Spotify all day long, but there's something about gathering together with God's people It's something the church has been doing for thousands of years and will continue to do for thousands of years until Jesus comes again. We come together, but we don't come acting like everything's fine. We come and we bring our laments and we lay them at the feet of Jesus amongst the people of Jesus. And we help one another to celebrate, not in spite of our suffering, but in the midst of it. The best time to gather with God's people isn't when you're happy and joyful. The best time to gather with God's people is when you're not. To not sit at at home by yourself to go off and find some other distraction, but to come and sit amongst God's people. And maybe you can't stand up and sing the words. Maybe it's difficult for you to even open up your Bible, but at a minimum, you have God's people reading God's word over you, God's word being preached over you, God's word being sung over you. 
to be refreshed, to be renewed in those moments, to be reminded of who God is. So friends, make it a priority to gather regularly with God's people. To not come up with other reasons and excuses not to. And we aren't just the church on Sunday. We scatter as the church throughout the week. We desire for everyone in our community to be connected in transformational community, where you know two or three people, where you can be fully known and fully loved before, where you can cry out with and for one another and help each other remember the faithfulness of God so that we might have hope and confidence for what he'll do in the future. Remember, I said God has used this psalm in my life this week to help me to find my joy rooted in Christ, but guess what? I need you to remind me of that tomorrow because I'll be tempted to forget it again. We need each other throughout the week to point us back to who our God is. And let's not forget that having joy in the midst of difficulty, genuine joy that's rooted in the character and the nature of God, it testifies to our neighbors and the nations, enabling them to see and know who our God is, a God who redeems and restores. When someone knows the reality of your life, the difficulties you face, the challenges you experience, yet you still have joy, You're still fighting for joy and honest about where you're struggling to have joy because your faith and trust and hope is in the living God. That that exalts our God. It testifies to our neighbors that they might come to know him as well. Friends, what might God do in us and through us if we truly journey together fighting for genuine joy? May we be a people who remember who God is, who remember what he has done, and because of that, declare together the Lord has done great things for us, and we are glad. The gift of grace given to us to help us pursue joy in Jesus no matter what's going on in our lives is to gather together and take communion. We do this every week because when we do it, we confess that Jesus is our only hope in life and death, and we do it as an act of faith that confession is still true. We eat the bread, a picture of Jesus' body broken for us. We drink the cup together, a a picture of Jesus' blood shed for us. This, in this meal, is an act of remembrance. But it's more than that. And we believe that the Spirit of Christ is at work in this ordinance, in this act of worship. And so as you come forward this morning, I want you to come forward to eat and drink, but I want you to come with expectation. Come with expectation and ask God to restore you where you need restoration right now. But most importantly, ask him to restore joy in your life where it's lacking and to restore joy in the lives of those around you taking this meal with you. And if you're not yet a follower of Jesus, again, I'm so grateful, so glad that God brought you to gather together this morning. I hope what you hear this morning is there's an invitation of grace for you to experience lasting joy because of what Christ has done. And so instead of taking communion this morning, if you don't yet know Christ, I want to invite you just to hang in your seat, but we want you to take Christ this morning. Confess to God your need for him, placing your faith in Christ, who he is and what he's done, so that you might experience restoration now and for all eternity. Let somebody around you know that you've made that decision to follow Christ and let us help you journey with Jesus, and we want you to help us journey with Jesus too. For those of you that will come forward, you can come to the tables at the front or the tables at the back. And what Christ, our Redeemer, has done for you will be spoken over you this morning. Let's pray. God, you have indeed done great things for us, and we are glad. And God, I pray that you'd forgive us for seeking jolts of joy in other things, other people, other circumstances. 
And I pray, God, this morning, even right now in this moment as we come forward to take communion, God, I pray that you would restore joy wherever it's lacking in our lives this morning. Would you restore joy? Would you help us to fight for it this week by looking back in remembrance, looking forward in hope so that we might have joy in the present? God, would you help us to be a joyful people, but to be honest about our lives where we're struggling at the same time and to keep helping one another fight for joy? May the world see what you've done. May the world see what you are doing and testify to your greatness. And may God, may we testify to your greatness in our own lives. Thank you for your patience with us. Thank you for your steadfastness towards us. God, help us to walk out of here this morning rejoicing and saying, you have done great things for us and we are glad. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Thank you so much for listening to this sermon from Sojourn Fairfax. If you have any questions, please feel free to email us at info at sojournfairfax.com. Go in peace.